everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. As a dancer, especially with music. There's just like this body music connection that you can't avoid. It's not like you really have an option of moving, you just do. Data are data. They're just a bunch of numbers or a bunch of points. It takes a human to come along and say, these numbers or these points put together in this way means this. When you go to a dance school, they're basically just trying to break you. As a dancer, you're doing the choreography that somebody else created to somebody else's direction. You know, as a student, you don't have options to really express yourself or feel that your unique contribution is being valued. Crystal, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am super excited too to have you on the show, mostly because you're a dancing scientist. And I, I feel like number one, you're you're my you're my first you're my first dancing scientist. That should make Honor. you very very happy. Um, and I'm excited to get into. Everybody's going okay. What show did I just tune into? This is really weird. Um, but we're going to get into it because she legitimately is a scientist and legitimately is a dancer. We're going to talk about why those two things matter. But first, we're going to wind the clock back. Let me take you back to the '80s. Remember the fluorescent '80s? You were probably too young. You were born in the 80s, but you probably don't really remember. You probably I mean, more I'm of a imagining 90s. some fluorescent spandex and some roller skates. Yeah. I feel yeah. like, yeah, okay. Maybe some pigtails. Yeah, I'm there. All right. I'm going to take you back to the 80s and we're going to talk a bit about your parents. And we're going to mm-hmm. talk about this dream that they had for you of being a scientist, right? Mm-hmm. It was so strong that they're like, we're going to homeschool you. We're going to homeschool you because you, you're going to be a scientist. So why do you think your parents were so committed to that vision for your life? I don't think it had anything to do with me. I think it had more to do with them being afraid they were going to be bad parents. Explain and, that a little bit more. Know, well, you know, I was their first child. So they're, they really want to do it right. And they did all the, they ate all the organic foods and they played the Mozart while I was in the womb. And they did literally all the things to make sure that I wasn't screwed up when I came out. Uh Um, And then they just kind of kept doing those things. You know, they were really concerned that I, you know, would be able to read so I could take charge of my own education. It taught me to read really young. And they were worried that, you know, I wasn't going to be prepared for school. So we would do math problems before I went to bed. Totally normal. And then we went, or we, my mom and my dad went to the school district office to sign me up for first grade. And they said, no, uh, she's four. She has to go to preschool. And they said, well, she can read. She's doing basic addition, some subtraction. You know, we think preschool be a little boring for her. Um, And they wouldn't budge. And my mom, being who she was, said, thank you very much. I've been doing a good enough job on my own. I will continue doing a good job on my own and walked out. (laughs) And that was how I started being homeschooled. (laughs) Were your parents super intellectual academics? Or were they super entrepreneurial or did they not have any of that stuff, but they wanted to make sure that, you know, 
you did. Sometimes I think as parents, we overcompensate, right? We, we didn't get this, so we're going to make sure our kids get that. Like, what was that drive? And the reason why I'm asking these questions is there's a lot of people listening that, you know, maybe are seeing what you just described, where they're sitting down at night and, you know, they've got baby Einstein. She's pregnant right now and she's got the headphones on the belly yep. with baby Einstein, you know? Yep. And, you know, you could, you could interrupt that pattern um, of thinking. So like, what, tell me more about them. What were they like? My, my dad is a generic white guy, grew up in San Francisco, got his undergraduate degree in physics, took a semester off, accidentally got drafted, did the whole Vietnam thing. Um, and he had a really strict Swiss German Presbyterian upbringing. So there is definitely a right way to do things in the military. There is a right way to do things in my grandmother's house. Um, and so I grew up with a right way to do things. My mom, totally opposite. Her family immigrated to the United States from the Netherlands, but originally she was born in Indonesia. We went from Indonesia to the Netherlands during the independence. So, um, and then to the United States, she was the first person in her family to go to college. They wanted her to be a doctor. She ended up as a microbiologist, big disappointment. Um, they, she was still working in a hospital. So they kind of got it. Uh, she was doing like medical technician work. Like she was the one that was running your labs. <laughs> mm. um, but education and knowledge was always really important but they were coming to it from two completely different directions, but they at least agreed that I was going to achieve as much academically as I possibly could. And that was their definition of success for me. All right. So now we got the parents who are saying like, mm -hmm. by golly, darn it, you're going to be a scientist, but deep inside your soul, you want to, you want to dance and yeah, I came out wearing rhinestones and false eyelashes and ballet shoes. You know, um, it's interesting because I, I, I've actually never said this in almost 400 episodes now, but I went to the fame school in New York. So oh, cool. I went, I went, I was around a lot of your type. Do you know what I mean? Uh -huh. Yep. So tell me a bit more about that portion of your story in terms of your desire to dance, like when did it start bubbling? You mentioned right when you came out, but talk to me about what you were feeling regarding the dancing part. I mean, my parents wanted me to be well-rounded, at least at the beginning. So I was exposed to all of the fine arts. We had, we would go to see San Francisco Symphony. I was exposed to opera. I was exposed to ballet, but I was supposed to enjoy those things as, you know, someone as an upper crust patron of the arts would enjoy those things. I wasn't supposed to see that as like a life, <laughs> but I didn't get the memo. Um, I don't know. I think that if you're entrepreneurial or you're in a situation where you are the generator of something, you kind of know what this fe feels like, but as a dancer, especially with music, there's just like this body music connection that you can't avoid. It's not like you really have an option of moving. You just do. And then to take it further to an artist's perspective, there's a particular way of expressing self that is most... Uh, the word I want to use is labile. I don't know if that's like the, the facility of expression through what's the that, body. What's that word? Like labile? I, have I don't know. Isn't that like a woman's body part? No, that's labia. I just wanted you to say it. Okay, so it's <laughs> L... How do you spell it? L-A-B-I-L-E? I'm going to look it up to see if I'm using it correctly. Sometimes words. So you got a yeah. labra. I'll give, you, I'll give you some uh, some things. Liable to change, easily altered, according to Oxford. So labile means mm -hmm. liable to change. That's an easy way to remember mm -hmm. it. Okay, we got a new word. Perfect. Okay, go ahead. Cool. Vocabulary word for your audience. Yeah, we go. <laughs> That's how I knew how to express myself. And, you know, my father's upbringing being what it was, emotions were needing to be contained in a certain way within the household. And so I always felt most comfortable expressing myself through movement. So I did a lot of dancing by myself in my room. I did a lot of forcing my parents to sit on the couch and watch while I recreated mm -hmm. entire two-hour full-length ballets. Obviously. Right. You're doing Annie um, while they're, they're trying to watch 60 Minutes. 
Yeah. Yeah. My dad would just bring his laptop and he would do his work. He's like, hold (laughs) on. This is is the curtain call. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, whatever. He actually brought his laptop to actual like dance school performances and just sat in the back. (laughs) Well, what's, what's interesting is on one side of the coin, they were super driven to have you do the science stuff but also they were super supportive it sounds like with the uh with the dance stuff as well so if we fast forward a little bit you finally caved and you decided to go to the university of san diego and you studied mm-hmm. biochem um which by the way i took biochem one and two i, I would rather stick a needle in my eye than do it, it was horrific <laughs> I'm still, I'm 55. I did it 30 years ago. I still am traumatized. Still um, have trauma. Yep. Still. See, the biochem, you did neuroscience. And the main driver in you doing that was to study the brain because you hated people telling you what to do. So tell me a little bit more about like why you decided to go all in on understanding why people do what they do. I mean, I think. It was a little bit like before then, like my parents were very micromanaging in terms of my education, right? So yes, I started junior college when I was 11, but they determined what classes that Mm. I took, right? And so I had gotten into an argument with my father about whether or not I was going to take sociology, which he claimed was a pseudoscience and not worth taking. And I had to take, you know, third semester calculus instead. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was sort of when I really realized like 15 or 16. And that's when I realized, okay, I'm actually, I don't actually have any control over what I'm doing. And I really wanted to do psychology and sociology because how people interact, especially in small groups. I mean, I was homeschooled in a small group, right? So that's kind of like the politics and the connection and how they come together around hard times. Like that was always a real interest to me, but I was told that was never going to be something that I could do professionally. But I was allowed to take biopsychology, because mm-hmm. that was kind of sciencey. And once I saw that there were molecules in the brain and all those things I learned in OCHEM about those weird chemical functionalities actually meant biological downstream effects that were behavioral. That was cool. And then I was in. I was like, okay, I can get on board with this because I want to know about those molecules in the brain that help set the stage, the stage, for human behavior. It's interesting. Okay, we're going to get into those molecules uh, when we get into the uh, the science part of our show. But before that, you did an internship with the famous Scripps Research um, did, yeah. Institute. Wow, you did your research. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was at the Schultz Lab, Peter. PG Lab. Schultz. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so that's where you started figuring out your science thing out. What was it about that internship that was so pivotal for you at that stage of your life that the lights started to come on? I mean, I don't really think that anybody enjoys biochem as a class. If they do, it's pathological. There's I mean, a problem. Yeah, there's a problem. I, I would agree with you. But once, so the Schultz lab, quite a well-known lab in the chemical biology field. He sort of is one of the grandfathers of the field. He's one of the first people to incorporate an unnatural amino acid into a protein. Know what that means? Mm -hmm. You know, this is a protein that cannot exist in nature, but could exist in his lab. And it allows us to do a lot of really cool things like label proteins so that we can study them selectively or um, increase the half-life of drugs because they're tied to a protein. So very cool. What I was doing in the lab was directly impacting people. And the lab was highly collaborative. It had a lot of really smart people that trusted and respected each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would form tiny groups to solve problems. And so it really was the collaborative and creative nature of science, which I was interacting with for the first time, um, that made me think, oh, there's a place for me here. Hey, it's Rob. I wanna jump in and take a quick second to say you gotta get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you wanna work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. So now you graduate, you get your degree. 
And dancing isn't going away. So now you got your degree. Oh, no, I made a deal. I made a deal with my father. I will go to this school. I will get your bachelor's degree. And days after my degree is in my hand, I'm on a plane to New York and you have to help me. Got it. Okay. So it it wasn't that you... I I thought you sort of like just got this dancing thing out of your head and you were going all in on science. You made a deal where I'm, I'll do what you want me to do, but I'm going to dance in New York. And not only yeah. dancing, you danced or went to the Alvin Ailey School, which is as good as it gets. I mean, it's Juilliard is, is probably up there somewhere. I'm sure it is. Uh, but Al, Al, Alvin Ailey is certainly for dancers mecca. But you keep being called back to chemistry. So how do you reconcile? Well, first of all, this is very interesting to me because most people, I, at least in my experience, like if you meet an accountant or CPA, something like that, I mean, perhaps they could be dancers, perhaps, but you kind of go like, he's an accountant. Do you know what I mean? Like this guy's, or she's an accountant, but you had this like double life where it was so different, at least in my head. How did you hold it in your head? Was it like a release for you to go dance from the chemist or was it just you you were having two lives that you were just going to have two parallel lives? I, I felt very much pulled in opposite directions at that time. I've reckon, since reconciled them now, but at that time, I very much felt like it was an either or. I think that's something that people grow up thinking like you're told you're a scientist or science person, or you're not a science person or, you know, Oh, you're better at English. You're better at sports. You know, it's okay. You don't have to be good at math. And so I kind of had internalized that a little bit, but it was hard, you know, like when your dance teachers are talking about something to do with metabolism that you know is wrong. You can't be like, excuse me, you know, scientists here, (laughs) scientists here, you're wrong. Uh Uh-huh. It's really hard, but also, Stay you know, your lane. I had, stick to the cha-cha. I had, exactly. I had been in a lab where I had been recognized as someone that could contribute, whose voice mattered and whose experiments that they were running, you know, were contributing to the greater whole. And I, I felt included and I felt valued in that lab environment. When you go to a dance school, they're basically just trying to break you. As a dancer, you're doing the choreography that somebody else created to somebody else's direction. You know, as a student, you don't have options to really express yourself or feel that your unique contribution is being valued. And also, you know, I was <clears throat> lying about my age because uh-huh. there's an age requirement where uh, for, for 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 Ailey um, for the individual programs. There's like little age cutoffs. Uh-huh. And uh, so I might have been over the cutoff a little Bitch. bit. So I had, I had two 21st birthdays. It's fine. Why not? Uh, <laughs> why not? Um, and I didn't like being treated like I was a 19-year-old who didn't know anything, couldn't handle themselves, and had no knowledge of the real world. And so I was missing being an adult. And so that's when I started taking the train uptown to Columbia to attend the chemistry department seminars and kind of reconnect with my capability. Okay. So now you apply to graduate school and you don't just Mm -hmm. go to graduate school, you go to Caltech, right? So when you do things, you do them. So you go to Caltech, (laughs) right? And you chose to study nicotine dependence. Mm -hmm. So a couple of questions around this. Why, Why nicotine dependence? What was it about that that was floating your boat at that time? Well, I knew from my work in the Schultz lab, which is quite an intense lab. Like you want to talk about hustle culture. Like there's stories of Dr. Schultz, like leaving sticky notes on people's computers at like 2 a.m. Like it's 2 a.m. I'm here. Where are you? Um, So the the lab is was highly competitive, very high pressure. Um, And so I knew the downsides of graduate school. It wasn't going in blind. Um, And I knew that there were going to be days I didn't want to go and that everything sucked. (laughs) And there needed to be some reason to get up in the morning and continue going into the lab. And so nicotine dependence was interesting to me because it had a direct application on human health and it was the leading cause of preventable death in the world. So my research, however tiny, was going to contribute to a better understanding for 
you know, globally, all of humanity. And like, if that was enough to get me out of bed, then maybe I was in the wrong place. Right. Okay. When you, when you talk about the brain and the molecules that you were really, really fascinated by, mm. do you consider behavioral psychology as a part of your passion or is it all um, molecular? Where you don't you don't look you don't look at the you don't look at the behavioral part and what I'm getting at with that question is I want to ask you a few questions around smoking but my my brain is going down the road of behavior which is the sort of the questions I want to ask but I don't want to ask those questions if that's not how you approached it did you approach it behaviorally at all or was it just purely molecularly like with the chemicals with nicotine et cetera. So my most of my experiments in the lab were investigating the difference in a single atom substitution and a single subunit of a single type of nicotinic acetylcholine receptor that is only expressed in certain brain layers that are in certain brain regions. Um, but if you have this mutation, you are a third more likely to develop nicotine dependence if you ever smoke. So that was the direction that I was coming. It sounds like one guy in New Jersey falls into yes. that category. No. Um, well, the Caucasian population, certainly um, a significant amount. I'm trying to remember the exact number. I don't want to say something wrong, but some, somewhere around 20% of people might have this mutation on at least one of their alleles. So it's it's not that obscure. And it was very important to understand for the purpose of drug design and development. And so that is who would take the research that I did to, to run with it would be a pharma company would pick it up and say, okay, this is going to inform the way that we develop the next smoking cessation drug, for instance. Um, but my personal interest, of course, is in people and people's behavior. That's not what I chose to spend six years of my life studying. Um, I chose to study the behavior of fluorescent neurons that often died. Um, but uh, I think you should ask your behavior questions. And if I can't answer, then I'll okay. tell you. I can't All right. So <laughs> I, um, I live in Italy. I live in mm -hmm. Florence, Italy. I am looking out at the Arno River right now in Florence. And it's beautiful. And um, if I look out that window right there, I guarantee you I am going to spot 20 Italians with cigarettes in their mouths. It's mm -hmm. like, it's so weird because I was in Hermosa Beach in LA before I moved here. We've been here for four months and, you know, they surf there. Like nobody's, like nobody's, I, I don't know that I've seen anybody smoke, right? Here, everybody's smoking. And I looked at a pack of cigarettes uh, that was in the store the other day. I've never seen this before. You probably have, um, and maybe the listeners have, but there are pictures of people with like all kinds of horrible diseases, like crazy, disgusting, like you want to puke looking at the picture diseases, like a woman with a, a giant crater in her neck where you can literally see through her thing. And it says like, you know, will not might not could will cause esophageal cancer will kill babies, dead pictures of like dead babies on the cigarette. I, I, it's gross and crazy. There are more people here smoking than any place I've ever seen, right? And I would assume this is a European thing. I don't know. I can only speak to Italy. So my question is, at this day and age, as somebody who has studied this in the year 2022, what's going on? Like, why are people still doing this? Well, you asked actually several questions, so I'll try and yeah, answer just go wherever you all want. of them. The photos on the, on the cigarette packets, also um, in Asia, you also have, you know, these really dramatic <laughs> images. And it's also like one of the places where you get like, you know, the photos of the five and six-year-olds smoking. Right. Because they're just imitating the behavior of their parents and there's not an opportunity or maybe they don't even read um, to ask themselves, is this a good idea? All the people around them smoke. It's the same thing of like, you start to cuss. 
because like adults swear and you're trying to exert your independence. I think it can start like that. So that's actually, you know, one of the, the, what do you call it? Like risk factors for smoking is other people in your family also smoking because it's been normalized. And because it's been normalized, you get that you're able to deal with the cognitive dissonance. You just don't see it. Those black lungs on the package, because you don't smoke, are really emotionally like salient uh, to you. But a, a smoker does not register. Um, and so I, I think there is data to show that it will reduce, reduce smoking, reduce cigarette purchasing, um, but it certainly doesn't eliminate it. And it, it might be more successful if everybody waited till the legal age to buy a cigarette. But we all know that that's not your first interaction with the you know conventional cigarettes. Not like you turn eighteen and you're like, I would like to consider smoking now that it's legal to to purchase them or something like that. No, I think you nailed it. Um, right across the street from our house is a high school, and uh, we drop. Uh, we have a seven year old daughter, and we drop. She goes to school in uh, in Tuscany, so we drop her off at the bus, and she goes off, and my wife and I'll go for a cappuccino in the morning, and so we have to pass the school. And looking at the 14-year-olds, I, not like one 14-year-olds, like every 14-year-olds, yeah. the entire school, it, when the bell goes off for them to walk in, each one, you just there's a line of them dropping the cigarette and stamping it out as they walk in. It is unbelievable at what this is. Okay, so you did some research here uh, on mice brains you mentioned earlier to see the effect that uh, smoking had on them. Uh, my first question is, how'd you get mice to smoke? <laughs> you actually just get mice to drink nicotine water. And it's, but it's, it's really interesting that they will drink more and more and more and more nicotine water, but then eventually it does get aversive, right? It becomes bitter. There's too much nicotine in there. They don't like it. And then they stop drinking it. So there, there is a way that mice and people, um, kind of regulate themselves. I don't know exactly what the physiological experience of the mouse is, but anyone that smoked too much, you know, might be familiar with like nausea, really fast beating heart. Oh, I don't feel really good. It's like drinking too much coffee. Yeah. You're like, I drank too much coffee. Yeah. Um, and mice feel that effect as well. Now I will say one of my concerns around electronic cigarettes is that you can increase the dose of nicotine and shorten the amount of time that you're exposed. And so that curve of, oh no, this is too much, I better stop smoking, is significantly reduced. Like you will get to that point and possibly exceed it um, before your physiological symptoms are telling you, okay, I need to put down the vape. Um this is a, a hard question, not a hard question. Uh, I, I know the answer to the question. Well, let me just ask it. There yeah. are, there's smoking and there's vaping. If you had to pick one, if you were going to do one of them, which one would you, big air quotes, recommends that somebody would should do? Well, it's possible to vape without any nicotine. So, you know, you can just choose your favorite flavor of, you know, propylene glycol juice and, right. and do that. So I would probably choose vaping, but the nicotine's not the only problem with vaping, right? So I do see uh, vape pens as alternate nicotine delivery devices. I don't see them as smoking cessation instruments because that's not really how they're being used. Um, there is evidence that the heating coil, for instance, within the vape does release tiny particles of metal that they've detected um, in lung tissue. So it's not entirely risk-free, even mm. if there's no nicotine or any other addictive compound in the pen. But we know that burning tobacco creates carcinogenic products. We know what those products are and we know that they have led to the horrible things that you see on the cigarette cartons, sure. you know, when, when you walk by. So I would prefer to avoid those. <laughs> Got it. It's, it's choose yeah. your poison. Um, yeah. If I met you at a cocktail party, would you tell me you're a dancer or a scientist? I don't know. It depends on whether I reached my introvert wall. Sometimes I just say, I'm a girl and I do things. <laughs> I'm a girl and I do things. That's, yeah. 
That's really awesome. So, so you don't, do you feel like you have an identity of one or the other more? I have done more professional work that's visible as a scientist, but even that isn't the research that I have done, right? It's not giving scientific talks. It's as a scientist, being able to relate to other scientists and talk to them and get their story about their research and why they do what they do. So when I'm in Los Angeles, I tend to say that I'm a scientist because I am certainly not in the business when I'm other places, sometimes I'll say, oh, I host a science show on TV because that's closer to what I actually do. Um, but yeah, it, saying you're in the business means something real specific in LA. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's funny, you know, if, uh, and other parts of the country too. I mean, like if you say I'm a dancer in, uh, I was, I spent, um, uh, 30 years in Atlanta and uh, there are more strip clubs in Atlanta than any place in the country. So you tell somebody you're a dancer, it's automatically a stripper. You tell somebody- Well, in, if, you're, if your name is Crystal and you tell somebody you're a dancer, they think stripper first anyway, no matter you where go. you are. Got a stripper dancer scientist now. I got the whole thing yeah. covered, right? <laughs> so you're using different parts of your brain here. You, you know, the art uh, is imagination and science has a bit more constraints in uh, in its thinking, in, in your thinking. How do you think about those things when you're engaging in either of them? In other words, when you're doing dance, um, do you think about sort of like, you know, the formula of the dance that you're doing? There are steps, there's procedures, et cetera. This is the box and you use your science brain while dancing, or is it more flow and art and that part is turned off and then vice versa for, for uh, science? I think the idea that science isn't creative or doesn't require imagination is something that I wish we could change about the way that we teach science in schools. Mm -hmm. Because to be a successful professor, to be a successful researcher, you have to have imagination. You have to be creative. You have to say, I wonder if this works and then try it um, and see. So... I don't see the scientific life as being removed from that. But yes, there are certain constraints that have to be followed in order for your work to be accepted by the academy. On the, on the dance side, there is absolutely technique. I mean, maybe if it's a very, very abstract form of modern dance, yeah. Um, yeah. then there's not really a technique and that's more about the feeling. Um, but certainly most dance that you would pay to go see has a specific technique and you're looking at it and you can say that person was influenced by Paul Taylor. That person was influenced by Martha Graham. You can see the technique in it. So there is structure, even though the, the final product should be one of telling a new story um, or giving an emotional impression. So I think that they really feed off each other. I don't see it more or less in, in either one of those worlds. Okay, I wanna jump in for 15 seconds and say, if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may wanna join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. Let's go into uh, uh, just take a brief rabbit hole dive. We don't have to go for three hours on this, but just a, a, just a little dive. Everybody's talking about hashtag science now, right? COVID has us all crazy. We're all a scientist. Everybody knows everything <laughs> yep. about it, right? You know, my seven-year-old can tell me everything that... How do you think about this now? Because you really are a scientist. Now, you're not somebody that studies COVID, but you're some, somebody who's a trained thinker in this way. And so I, uh, I've listened to 
probably two or three podcasts with Joe Rogan where he talks about COVID and he's got the guy on who invented the mRNA vaccine. He's got another doctor that is published more, you know, uh, articles uh, on this than anybody in the world. And they're all being like, you know, ostracized from the medical community as anti-vaxxers and you know, blah, blah, blah. So when you listen to people that, you know, you sort of respect um, and they're saying one thing, but publicly, like, 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 let's, let's use this. So let's just say masks. There's a lot of people that say this is a game we're playing and it's theater and it is not doing anything. And it's not worth the downside of what's happening in the world for people walking around masks all the time, especially in California, right? It's nuts. But as a scientist, you look at it and go, well, hold on a second. I'm not saying you do. I'm giving you an example. The data is showing something different. And I'm sure that you have had over the course of these almost three years now, feelings where you're like, whoa, hold on a second. How do you, how do you reconcile that? Well, first, I have the luxury of being able to split hairs. I think one of the challenges in science media, like even pre-pandemic, is that producers will get a hold of a scientist and think that they can speak about all of science. Like I stood in for an interview once that was supposed to be about climate change. And I was really excited because it was a really big name scientist. And then I got there and I realized the scientist that I was interviewing. And I was like, yes, this guy's great. He's got a Nobel Prize in particle physics. Where's the climate scientist? And they were like, no, no, you're going to talk to him about global warming. And I was like, why? He developed a particle that has nothing to do with climate science. So just because you're an expert in one thing does not mean that you are an expert in all of science. And I get that a lot too. Like, hey, can you come on our show and talk about quantum physics? Not really. Mm -hmm. um, so I, with this pandemic, will look at who's talking about what. Like, let the epidemiologists talk about their areas of speciality. Let the public health experts talk about their area of speciality. Let those that developed the vaccine versus those that distributed the vaccine versus those that manufactured the vaccine talk about it. You know, so I'm kind of looking at who's talking about what and then using that as part of the calculus on whether or not their interpretation of the data is one that I want to put a lot of weight on, right? Because data, data are data. They're just a bunch of numbers or a bunch of points. It takes a human to come along and say, these numbers or these points put together in this way means this. And you will look at them and you have a particular area of expertise. And so your best thinking on those data is going to be something. I will come along with my area of expertise and I will look at those data. And my best guess based on my experience will be something else. Neither one of us are experts you know, in vaccine distribution, for instance. So if that's what those data are about, how relevant is our best guess? Got that's it. the way that I think about the sources. And so one source could be really amazing on like, how did you develop this vaccine? Terrific, that you might be the best source on that. But in terms of global distribution in low-income areas, you probably aren't going to be the best source on like that particular aspect. So, which is I, probably why everybody is in such disagreement because everybody's looking at different sources, right? Everybody's pointing to different things that they believe. And there's probably some narrative built into, you know, politics and whatever, you know, like just in America, we have one state that thinks this way and another state, like, you know, Florida doesn't have COVID, Texas doesn't have COVID, right? You know what I mean? Like, you're just going to do whatever, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been crazy. Right. And I think politicians are put in a really difficult spot, right? Because if borders were closed and everybody just that was a resident of Texas, for instance, stayed in Texas, then they really could make a decision about what's best for their specific state population. Right. But the problem is, is that borders are permeable mm. and people are coming in and out all the time. And so you have to take that into account in your decision making. So uh, you see governments of islands like New Zealand or Australia making different types of decisions than uh, governors of states in the United States because they have the luxury of isolation. Oh, yeah. And they are they are taking up uh, 
they're they're definitely isolating. There's no there's no question about it. Um, speaking of other countries, you also live in Jakarta. How did that come about in your life? Tell me more about Jakarta and why you go back and forth. It's such an interesting, like weird turn of events, right? My mother was born in Jakarta. Um, her so she's mostly, I would say three fourths Indonesian, and she has a very European last name, but um Mike is on my grandfather's side, but she looks very Asian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but my grandfather worked for the Dutch colonial government. And so my mom and my aunt were allowed to go to the Dutch school. So they were very much aligned with the Dutch colonial regime. And so when that ended, they had to get the F out. So they, you know, took a long vacation to the Netherlands, which turned into immigrating to the United States. And then 50 years later, you know, I meet a guy who happens to be getting his PhD in orangutan behavior. Oh. And, you know, he's done, obviously. And you've done, he's done like six years in the field in the rainforests and the jungles in Indonesia. So he speaks fluent Bahasa, even though he's this like British Ecuadorian guy. Um, And he, you know, I'd known him for a while. He actually wrote the first script for the first YouTube series I ever hosted. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we went our separate ways. And then... He sort of helped to identify a new species of orangutan. You don't really get to like characterize a new species of primate that often. So it was kind of a big deal. Um, and so I was helping him to like publicize his finding. And then we started dating. Mm. It was one of those things, right? Where you know, okay, we know each other from before. So this isn't going to be casual. Like it's going to be a relationship or nothing. Um, and so I was like, I don't want kids. And he's like, I'm moving to Indonesia when I get my PhD. Cool, cool. And then that was kind of, and then that was it. <laughs> Let's go to Indonesia and not have kids together. <laughs> yeah, we have two cats. They're great. I named them after Mars rovers. They're spirit and opportunity. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> there are kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but you go back and forth though, right? I do. I work in the United States and I live in Jakarta. And in production, you can do that. So all the pre-production, all the research, all of the script writing, all of that stuff can be done when I'm in Indonesia. And then I fly back to the United States and I shoot, 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 shoot. And where do and you shoot? You shoot everything in California? Mostly in California. Um, it really depends on which production. I'm working with a new company that I can't talk about, but I'm really excited because we got to go on location to do... Um, inter- we were interview- doing a lot of different interviews since we were flying um, to the interview locations. And that's just like the old days, the pre-pandemic days. I was really no. excited to be able to get out. <laughs> Coming back. Feels good. Maybe we're moving to an endemic before you know I it. I hope so. Um, you founded a company called Not Simple. What is that? Mm-hmm. Not Simple is a creative consulting firm. It's basically a bunch of really smart people that think that they can do anything. So it's me, another molecular biologist, um, one of the nation's leading experts in quantum cryptography, and a another quantum mathematician. Um, all of we have Caltech in common, um, and we kind of come in and we help you do something big that has to do with something technical. So we are one of our last oh, really exciting clients, which never saw the light of day because the Olympics was canceled. Um, but it was a very large scale technology demonstration in which we had to communicate a lot of specific things about technology that they were developing. Sorry, yeah. some of those consulting things. So I can only be so specific, but do it in a way that could play in an entertainment venue mm-hmm. on an international stage, right? There's not so many science scientists or science communicators that can do that. Um, but you know, our molecular biologist, yes, he's an expert in eye biology, but he's also a script writer for Hollywood. He's worked with like Paul Rudd and Zoe Saldana and like all these things, you know, and our our on the technical side, like Spiros is our mathematician but he's also Greek and he's always going big. He's always going bigger. Big. So his job is like when, when we're like, okay, we're in execution mode. He's like, what if <laughs> And the things get bigger? Yeah. And so we work really well together and we love working with clients um, that are willing to kind of go there. So if you're willing to take a risk like this one, this one was um, we will help you 
to execute your wildest dreams in projects that are not simple. I love that because you're I, what I here's what I love about your life. I love <laughs> the fact that you have such two, two different access to two different very important parts of the brain that are well developed. Science and arts. Like that is amazing. Like I just I literally just came back now. One of the reasons why I moved to Florence is because I know nothing about art. I don't want to leave the planet not understanding things. So every week, I, we, my wife and I, we hired a um, like an art historian. She walks us around the city. And on the Friday oh. afternoon, we spend three hours. Um, and so we just literally walked back. I, I had to leave to do this interview with you. And I sat there in front of the David. And we just sat there and just stared. And she told us the whole story about bringing the block of block and how they chipped away at it. And it took them three years. And this is the, like we went to the building that he, he did it in all that kind of stuff. So I understand because if you, if you look into, like I read the Michelangelo, um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's book by Walter Isaacson, he was a scientist. He opened up cadavers for years. If you look at the arm on the, the hand on the David, the one that's down is vascular because it, this is stone. This is marble that he cut, he cut veins in because that hand is down. This was, So it's art and science together. And I love that you have that. Okay. I'm going to ask you some questions as we wrap up. Uh, some of them may seem weird. Just roll with it. What do people often get wrong about you? Well, first that I'm a stripper. Stripper. Yeah, um, we've already covered that. And also that. that I have no sense of humor. Oh, you seem funny. I think you're funny. <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't get that. I think you're funny. What's one thing that you have not gotten to in your life that if you don't get to this, you're going to have regret? I'm going to write a book. Mm. Haven't done the book thing yet. Okay. What are some things that you're currently doing that you don't love and you wish you could do less of? Emails. Great. It's a great answer. I think. Yeah. What, what new behavior or habit has most improved your life? Drinking a full glass of water before I do anything else at the beginning of my morning. Interesting. What is one, what is an unusual or absurd thing? that you love. People may think it's weird, but I love it. Nutcracker belly? In in what regard? Like watching it? Like like my family doesn't celebrate <laughs> Christmas, we celebrate nutcracker season? Why is that? And it's like like the season in which you go to see the Nutcracker Ballet or your younger sisters performing in 15 Nutcracker Ballets and you see every single one of them, including the matinee and the evening show on the same day because she's playing different roles and you want to make sure she sees that counts. all of them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that is unusual and slightly absurd. Okay, perfect. You, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Argentina. Mm. I will learn about Malbec and I will come back a tango dancer. I read Tim Ferriss's book for our work week, went wow. to Argentina and did tango with his teacher and nice. freaking loved it. I was, I fell all over myself, but it was horrible, but it was an amazing experience. I absolutely loved it. Um, Maybe I'll get through it. Uh, you will, you will. Okay. So two more questions. Um, one, are there any positions that you changed your mind on where you used to think this way, but now you're like, you know, I, I was all in on that idea. I don't think that way anymore. Now I think this way. I think my biggest flip-flop was um, cannabis or re and recreational drugs. You know, I grew up really strict household, like you long-haired hippies kind of strict household. Like this is your brain on drugs. And then I went into studying molecular neuroscience. So you get to see 
the actual research on some of these things. And I was actually working as a science consultant for a cannabis company, a CBD company that was specifically looking at CBD for traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. And that's when I really got to dive into what is a schedule one drug? Who makes these decisions? What is the research on CBD really saying? And you know, I can't speak to it at large because there's many, many more experts sure. on that, but specifically the research on traumatic brain injury and its benefits for a concussion is what really changed my mind in terms of the way that we were looking at these things. I love that. Last question. What will hmm. change things up a little bit? What one question would you like to ask me? People see me as being quite like a risk taker, but mm -hmm. I see myself as very risk averse. Um, and you know, I'm reading your bio, you're not afraid, not afraid of a pivot. And nope. so what do you use as a compass when you're feeling that like transitional itch? It's a great question because I have pivoted a lot, <clears throat> significant pivots. Um, I, uh, well, first, let me say this. I, I used to believe that doing one thing and switching from that one thing to something else was uh, wishy-washy and it was a sign of weakness and it was, you didn't have stick to -itiveness. I don't think that way anymore. I think that we are, we have things that call to us. We have an inspiration. If I can get woo-woo for a second, we have, a, we have a, an inspiration that hits us that we say, oh, I want to dance or, oh, I want to move to Italy or, oh, I want to study art. And if we ignore that still small, quiet voice that's inside of us, it, it's, it doesn't go away if it's real. Your dancing wasn't going away, regardless of whether or not you were a scientist or you were going to be an astronaut. You were going to be a dancing astronaut. Do you know what I mean? Like it's going to happen. So I now believe that if I have a legitimate, heartfelt, pull to something that I will take a bite of the apple and I will try it. I'm not going to pick my family up and move, you know, to Jakarta just because I talked to you and it sounds great. But if that is in there, I may say, I'd like to take a trip. Let's take a trip and go check it out. Or um, next level, let, let's go for one month and let's see what it feels like. So I am now open to the messages that the universe is giving me, because I really believe that those messages, I don't know where they come from. I don't know why they're there. I have no idea. But you hit a point in your life, or at least this is what is happening to me, where the expiration date um, of things <clears throat> become very clear. For example, um, I have a seven-year-old now. And you know, at 55, it's a challenge to, to, to have a seven-year-old, right? Um, and there are times where it is, you know, you're working on something, but they, they want to color, right? And so you got you to gotta learn. But when you really think about it and look and say, okay, she's seven, um, this is a front-loaded thing. I may have, you know, 10 more years left my wife's name is Kim and my daughter is Sophia. I might have 10 more years left of doing this Rob Kim Sophia thing in Italy. And then it's over. And then it's just, she's not going to want to hang out with us. She's going to want to be with her friends. She's going to want to go to college. She's going to, you know what I mean? And so, you know, I have a dog that is 13 years old and she's blind and deaf and she, and she has to wear a diaper now. And there are times where I'm like, Jesus, like you're, you're peeing on the floor. But then I look and go, there's only so many dog walks I have left with her. Like she's not living more than a year or two. So the expiration dates of not only my life, and if I can even expand that a little bit further to push the metaphor, my mom, you know, statistically is on borrowed time. She's in her eighties now, you know, and I see her once a year, my dad passed, but I see her once a year. So how many more visits do I have? I don't know, three. For, so I literally will see her three or four more times before I don't ever see her again. And so when you start quantifying how many summers you have left, do you know what I mean? Like if I live the average life, what do I got? 20 summers left, 25 summers, whatever that is, it starts getting real. 
And so you start going, what the hell am I in my head about not pivoting to do something else? If your heart's there, go. That was a really long answer. No, I love that answer. It's a very interesting framing because for me, it's always been iterations on the model, like machine learning algorithm or something like that, right? You put the data in and you've already written the model algorithm and you don't like the outputs. You put different data in and you change the model a little bit and then you get closer and closer to what's going to make you happy and fulfilled. But I don't think of it as sort of the like cost-benefit analysis of not doing it. That's a very interesting way to approach it but maybe something I should consider because I think it encourages bigger jumps as opposed to like smaller iterations. I tell you what else it does. It creates different choices because once you make those choices, like think about, I had a conversation with a friend and I was like, I love LA. I'm like, it's like, oh yeah, it's crazy. But I love, I love the surfing. I love the weather. I love the beach. I felt like I was in a Sunkiss commercial. You know, it was great. It was like a scale of one to 10. It was a 10 but I love Italy. I love the wine. I love the food. I love the people. I love the art. And he said, if you had two years left to live in your life and you got a diagnosis today, would you continue in LA or would you move to Italy? And it was so clear. It was so clear to me. And that choice, my entire freaking life is different. Everything about it is different. The food I eat, the wine I drink, the friends I have, the, the everything. You know, we talk about like nature, nurture, but I'm going to add one more, neighborhood. I, I think people mm-hmm. give a lot of thought to what they want to do and who, how they want to do it, but they give very little thought to where they want to do it. And that's where you're living. It influences everything. When I walk out my door and I'm looking at the Arno and my daughter is going to school in a Tuscan farmhouse and I'm going to school to visit her and we're looking at olive groves and, and um, wineries, my, everything about my life is different. So those choices change everything. So long answer, but interesting, right? I love that. I think we're, I hope that we're going to see more people kind of taking their own life into their hands, especially with the experience of the last two years, like that realization, life is too short and we might as well try the thing. Now, I mean, like I'm, I'm looking at you and I'm saying this and I'm like, I have to write that book now, don't I? <laughs> well, you know what's- you know what's, do the thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, okay, I'm going to leave you with this. Do you yeah. remember when you said, I couldn't not dance? I'm, I'm moving. Like I am literally moving. I cannot not dance. It is, it is in me. When you get that place with the book where you can't not write it, that's the time to write the book where you just, okay. you, you, you don't even, you don't even need to, you're not, you're not talking about it. You're not sharing it. You're just like, get out of the way. I got a book to write. It just comes out of you. I don't need to tell you that like you should dance. I don't need to tell you you should do science. You're going to do it. So right now, my, my intuition is that you are percolating the ideas for the book that are in there. And the distance is a, is a dot. You know it's coming. It's on the horizon. But I need a little bit more until I get there. And then it'll be more well-rounded. That's my gut. All right. I like that. I'm working on it already. I got it all up here. (laughs) This was awesome. I will um, make sure we link up everything we talked about in the show notes. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Um, I think my ask is to consider how you have taken on ideas of who and what you are in the past and see if you can maybe rethink them. Like, did anyone ever tell you you're not a science person or yes, your art is cute, but it's not actually art. It's just a sketch. Like those, think about those things and the way that you've conceived your self-identity and see if you can rewrite that a little bit. Because I think um, fields or ways of being that we have been told are not accessible to us are actually a lot closer than we think. Than we think. I love it. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being on the show. My goodness, thanks so, for this, so much for this conversation. It was a lot of fun. Boom, we are out. You crushed oh. it, my lady.
Yay! That was awesome. So good. Oh, you're so easy to. I wish that we'd gotten into the me asking you that question sooner because I feel like we could have taken that conversation um, do you a little have, bit further. You don't, further, you don't have a podcast, do you? No, I don't. Yeah, you should get a <laughs> just, podcast. You'd be you'd be great at it. And if you if you get a podcast, I'll be uh, I'll be your first guest. <laughs> well, thank you so thank much. You. Is there anything else you need from me? No. If I do, my team will reach out. Perfect. All right. Well, enjoy Italy. Thank you. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. Oh,